0: Welcome back to the Reptile Living Room, I am your host as always, John F. Taylor, and of course we are brought to you today by Herpeticulture House Magazine, that's herphousemag.com. You can drop by and grab a full subscription of six issues plus the free annual for just ten dollars, and that's, uh, like I said, five full issues, or sorry, six full issues plus the uh, free annual, which is a double pack of basically uh, some really interesting articles, And uh, various other tips that you can use in herpeticulture with field herping, uh, shows, uh, show reviews, and what have you. Just a lot of really good information that uh, you owe it to your reptile to get into. So once again, the website's herphousemag.com. You can click right there on the subscribe button and grab that for yourself and your reptiles. And also, we are part of the uh, Stitcher Network now, which is a mobile application for Android, uh, iPhones, Blackberries, you name it, whatever's out there they have you covered a lot of our audience does listen to our radio show on mobile uh, devices so now stitcher makes it available without any syncing or anything like that you just download the app and it always constantly updates to our latest show so do check them out at stitcher.com and this week we are talking about one of my of course one of my favorite subjects reptile cognition with mr dan noble he did some research with some lizards that uh, uh, proved very very interesting So, without further ado, here is Dan Noble and Reptile Cognition. And today we are joined by uh, Daniel Noble, and Daniel is responsible for some recent research into Reptile Cognition, which many of the uh, listeners will already know I'm a big fan of uh, Reptile Cognition, and I caught um, Daniel's piece uh, across uh, Google Alerts, actually. It showed up in one of the lizard biology letters and uh, contacted Daniel And, um, so here he is today with us. (laughs) And, uh, so tell us, Daniel, uh, first of all, how did you first come to be interested in reptiles in the first place? I guess would be the best way to start.
1: Well, I've actually been working with reptiles for probably about, um,
2: 12 to 15 years now. Oh, okay. Um, My, my first sort of, uh, kind of
1: go-to, uh, for reptile stuff was, um, the, the local pet store.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so basically, I was, I got into basically, um, housing some, um, green and and stuff at home. Mm-hmm. And, um, from that point, I sort of progressed pretty rapidly to keeping a bunch of different species and then also starting to breed them. Oh, okay. And so, when that was basically during high school. Right. And then as I sort of progressed into university, uh, um, I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Okay. Um, and basically, there's a there's a bunch of herpetologists there that primarily work on amphibians, um, and so I sort of got involved into different research projects that they were doing, um, and sort of started working on some of the mole salamanders, um, which which we have in Ontario, and right. doing some kind of evolutionary genetic stuff. But I was sort of much more keen on working with reptiles um, uh, over amphibians. And so that's sort of what, after my undergrad, and my master's at Guelph, that brought me down to Macquarie University to work with Martin Whiting, um, who studies um, primarily lizards. And okay. So that's that's sort of my,
2: my story.
0: All right. Very <laughs> childhood cool. Childhood, <to> now. <laughs> Very cool. Now, where did you come up, or how did you come about, being interested in cognition in reptiles? Because that's not really a, uh, an aspect that is real well-known, I guess, is the best way to put it, <laughs> or is yeah, not, not recognized um, anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, lizard cognition is, is really, we don't really know a lot of um, information on, on how lizards really um, stack up with respect to their cognitive abilities, especially compared to birds and mammals, which have primarily been the focus of research for, you know, the past many decades (laughs) but I mean some of the some of the earlier work in reptile cognition which was done was quite good Um, and 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 what it sort of pointed to was that that reptiles were generally kind of poor learners compared to mammals and birds but a lot of these studies were actually using sort of tests and experimental paradigms that they would apply to mammals and birds which um, is sort of you know, is is in some sense saying you know, you're you're basically giving an expert in English a math test and telling them to do a math test. Right. They may not have the expertise to do that kind of that kind of task. So it's a sort of it's a sort of same type of situation we have in cognition, where, um, you know, they're applying and to some degree some experimental paradigms which are quite good. Um, to reptiles, and, and there's no doubt that some reptiles respond well to that, but others may not, simply because it's it's sort of um, kind of obscure and odd for the, the animals to really even encounter those types of tasks, Right. and so, so this is sort of where we sort of came in and we were interested in sort of asking whether we see similar patterns when you actually test these water skinks in more natural conditions using using a basically a task that they would sort of encounter in the wild pretty mm-hmm. regularly, um, which has important kind of fitness implications. And when you you sort of think of it in that way, um, then you can sort of design an experiment which may mimic the sort of cognitive tests that, you know, they would normally encounter um, naturally. And so you, you it makes for a more realistic design for which you can actually um say something that that potentially is more representative of what's actually happening out there.
2: Right,
0: because I was reading, um, gosh I'm trying to remember who the gentleman was, Uh, Mark Beckoff I think and some other folks were talking about um, testing lizards and the reason that um, essentially what he was saying is people are doing it wrong which is why your article uh, that came out really caught my eye because they were talking of, you know, okay, well, you're taking a lizard out of a wild environment, putting him into an experimental environment, which is essentially sterile. And yep. so, of course, they're not going to figure anything out, <laughs> you know. and yep. But you, on the other hand, did exactly what I thought should have been done a long time ago, which is basically recreated a, you know, as much as possible, anyway, uh, a naturalized habitat for this experiment. Yeah, I mean... I, I would I wouldn't go so
2: far as saying um, that it was done wrong um, in the past or okay. studies. It's it's actually more that <clears throat> previous studies are more interested
1: in different sorts of questions. So our question was specifically: Can lizards learn these tasks, and if they can, do they show flexibility in in
2: the, in, in in how they learn these tasks? So can oh, they gotcha. can okay. easily recreate associations, which is what you'd
1: predict. Mm-hmm. Of the, um, part of the
2: stuff that was done in the past is more interested in questions involving what sorts of cues animals are
1: actually using, or lizards are using, to learn the tasks. And so, you know, th- it's not that they, didn't, they, did it, they did it wrong, it's just that they were interested in different questions, and when you're interested in those different questions and you try to isolate the an animal and put them in, in a contrived environment to control for all these different factors. What happens is you run into a situation that may not re- so you're so basically you're using that data to answer the other question when it was originally designed to ask what sort of cues are lizards
2: using to navigate to particular refuges or to learn right. situations. Okay.
1: So it's not that they were done wrong, it's just that I think it's more about, you know, extrapolating to, to kind of different situations which was maybe a little bit too too premature.
0: Right. Okay, that makes sense. Now, talk to us about um, how the experiment went and how you guys, how you folks, um, originally came up with the idea. I guess would be the best way to put it. What, what were we searching for? <laughs> so, our, our lab down here at Macquarie Uni is um,
1: quite interested in, in reptile cognition, and you know, we had a postdoc, Pau Carazo. Um, come over for six months, and he's from the University of Valencia um, in Spain, and he, he comes from a, a strong cognitive background. Okay. You and I were sort of just chatting over this um, idea over lunch, and uh, thought it would be a really neat way to sort of kind of test this question and, and put it in a really realistic setting. And so one of the powerful parts of this experiment was... Because we have the resources available to sort of do these types of tests, many labs actually sort of don't. So in our in our case, we have very large outdoor experimental enclosures which we can make use of. We have a large number of them, which means we can have replicate um, kind of uh, experiments going at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, we sort of were just chatting about this and thought, wow, this would be a really cool thing to do, which could be really interesting. Um, and so. You know the next um, season we sort of put our ideas together and grabbed a bunch of lizards from our lab colony and, and basically set them up in these large outdoor tubs we have that are about three three and a half well about 3.2 meters in diameter and we basically set up three different refuges so we're giving a, a rather complex task than what what most studies in the past
2: have sort of presented lizards with they're usually two refuge choices or something like that right a three-refuge choice, which means, um, you know, the task is is, is slightly more complicated. Mm-hmm. Because I have a much larger spatial scale, so they could also learn this much more quickly
1: simply because of the spatial scale that that we have available. <clears throat> and so uh, most of the cognitive studies kind of use maybe four or five lizards or, you know, a very small sample size to actually kind of test these questions which is which is reasonable because they're really interested in asking can they do it or not mm-hmm. um, part of the problem you know there's a huge amount of in, like um, within individual or basically variability across individuals um, and so by using just a small sample size you could just be missing the question because you're just testing two few individuals and, and a lot of
2: these tasks may not be learned by good proportion of lizards so for, for whatever reason, we don't really know the, the reasons why as, at this stage. Um, and so we decided to just bump up the sample size pretty dramatically. Um, so that was a, kind of a powerful component of our, of our experiment in that we used a total of 60 lizards, whereas wow. you know,
1: studies would use maybe four, five, six lizards. Um, and
2: so we could actually
1: really get at this question, I think, quite well, is, is can they do it? Um, and also sort of what proportion can do it. And, and so um, we basically just had three refuges in these round tubs, and we put one lizard in each tub, and then every day, um, three times a day, we'd scare these lizards. So we'd go in, um, and we basically sort of chase them around, um, but in a, in a sort of standardized fashion, and um, try to scare them into what we, we randomly chose basically what we call the safe refuge. And the safe refuge is basically a randomly chosen refuge that um, was was designated the safe refuge. And it was different for all individuals. Um, And to kind of avoid any kind of problems where we might think the direction of the lizard's um, flight, we would randomize the direction we scared lizards in. So we had 40 tubs set up in a a grid. Um, And we used 30 of those tubs for the experimental batches
2: that we had, okay. and we, we walked in and, and scared lizards um, in different orders, so we weren't sort of coming in, going into the tubs in the same place every single time, which means that the lizards could essentially get used to where you're coming in from and, and right. really in a direction, just because that's the right direction to go in, because it's sort of away from, from you. So, that's sort of what we did, and, and then I think the, the really cool part of our study is it's just quickly is, is how quickly they learn what we call the reversal task. So um, the reversal task is basically we're just playing tricks on the lizards now, so we've, tr- we've trained them to a particular safe refuge. Mm-hmm. And now what we're doing is we're saying, okay, that was a safe refuge, but let's just now randomly select the new refuge
1: and see how quickly they can learn to associate with with that particular new refuge now. Um, and so this is this is sort of... Not done a lot in lizards, um, and, and part part of the reason was because a lot of the time they have difficulty learning even the beginning task. Um, but, right. but we were pretty quick learning even the first task, so we thought it might be really cool to do reversal to sort of get at this a little bit better. So, um, at yeah, once we you know we decided to actually add that part into the experiment, I think it, it kind of improved it quite a bit because um, we could see that lizards were essentially transitioning to the new safe refuge um, pretty quickly. Um, But the cool thing was, in the first few trials, what we noticed with a lot of lizards was that um, when you scare them to the new safe refuge, they would go back to the former safe refuge, the one that was originally um, the the refuge that, um, you know, they were trained to. Um, And also, not only that, but if if you scare them, between the two, two refuges they would basically run directly for the former safe refuge as well. So that suggests that they, they were actually learning that refuge for its spatial position because um, if you give them enough time, you'd expect them to sort of go back because maybe they have scented that refuge and they go back. But, but we were finding that lizards, if you were to disturb them, would make, well, most of the time, the first choice would be the former safe refuge, um, which was pretty cool. Um, and, and they wouldn't be using necessarily chemical cues during this period to do that because when they're running, they're not necess- they're not really scent. You know, they're not picking up scent that quickly um, because they're they're running really fast through these refuges. So they're not really they're not they don't have time to sit there and sample the ground to find out where chemical trails really
0: right for incidental <laughs> tasting and what have you for scent trails. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's that's just amazing <laughs> that's yep. Wow
1: these guys um, are definitely really cool lizards. it's uh, you know they, they often occupy particular refuges and they, they know in the environment even if you know you're walking around outside they know they have a, they have a multiple refuges which they will ba- basically run to um, depending on which ones they're close to so they, they know the spatial position of these references refer- Refuges in the wild, um, and so um, it's, it, it doesn't surprise. It, it is a bit surprising how quickly and, and um, the fact that they can do this kind of flexibly, uh, right? Because we,
2: but, we um, but yeah, I mean, I think more and more
1: studies. Um, there's some excellent excellent work on um, kind of the instrumental learning and monitors, which shows that you know these these lizards are. You know, monitor lizards
0: are incredibly um, intelligent at kind of opening, um, you know, devices to get access to food and stuff like that. I was so about to ask you about that because I, when I was reading earlier, I saw the um, J.D. Manrod and the blackthroat Black Throat Monitor Lizard study. I actually have that. And yeah. that's the one that they were opening the, uh, the tubing and getting food out. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that's correct.
0: Yeah, so, that, you know, that I mean, one was wild.
1: <laughs> there's more and more of these studies sort of coming out, and a lot of people are quite interested in in, in these sorts of things. Um, definitely there's a taxonomic difference. There's definitely groups that are going to gonna gonna you know, over others. Like, for example, monitors are regularly active foragers for food. Um, right. So they probably encounter those types of problems pretty regularly.
2: Um, and so, you know... That was an excellent task that Menrod et al. applied to um, to those monitor lizards, which which allowed them to, you know, get at that question, uh, pretty in a, in a very interesting way, um, and, and also a very sensible way because it's something that these lizards would actually have to do in the wild. Right. And it's probably why they did,
1: you know, such a good job of of doing it.
0: Okay. <laughs> they learned. That makes sense. So you think that uh, taxonomically speaking, depending on obviously how they evolve and things of that nature, but different reptiles will have—I um, almost said intelligence—a different cognitive ability. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think. Okay. That, I think. I mean, in a general sense. Yeah, it, very general, it, of course. It depends on the sort of task that you're sort of applying to these different, different groups. But I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a strong theoretical um, kind of underpinnings to, to suggest that you would expect these
1: sort of things, um, particularly for example, um, you know, forging or, or, you know, quality forging and um, being able to forge in, in very complex environments like maybe monitor lizards might do where they're generalists, but they're forging on a whole suite of different things, which... Are occupying different niches in the environment, and basically, um, you know, they might have to, in order to get a particular food item, innovate in order to get at it. Okay. Um, oh, uh, innovate is sort of maybe not the right word, but but the idea is that you know they sort of have to, they sort of have to be able to figure out problems in the environment to, to obtain sufficient amounts of, of food. Right. I and mean, These are big, so um, you know they do eat. Quite a huge diversity of things, um, but you know, for example,
2: maybe our snakes. I mean, I well, our snakes are actually pretty good at at um, foraging tasks and figuring
1: out what we call we call them instrumental tasks if they're trying to figure out ways in which they can get in. Um, they achieve some sort of instrumental. They have to do a particular motor task in order to get at a particular food item, which is essentially what what that is. Right. And, our, our skinks are actually quite good at that too, but but skinks also are kind of moving into crevices and foraging actively um, for particular prey items. At least these guys are, um, and so again, it, it, taxonomically, if you were to apply those types of things to gamets, you know, which are more sit and wait predators, or, or sorry, yeah, predators of, of food items, it mayn't really necessarily apply because there's not the same sort of selective pressure on at least theoretically on mm-hmm. those those groups to actually do those types of tasks, and so they might be a lot slower at it or you might get a situation where they just can't figure it out at all because it's something that they don't need to figure out simply because they're just sitting there waiting for food to pop by
2: anyway. So these are the sort of things you have to think about, you have to think about the sort of
1: biological reality of the tasks that you're applying to your system in, in general and, and how they. How they might encounter these, or or might encounter sort of something similar in, you know, their everyday lives. I guess.
0: Wow. Okay, that makes sense. Now, um, as far as where does this research take us in the next uh, in the next steps? I guess is the best way to put it. Well,
1: um, that's a great question. So um, we still don't really have a lot of. Details on, on kind of the cognition stuff in reptiles to the extent that we have in mammals and, and birds. But mm-hmm. I think the part of the really interesting kind of move forward is in, in, in all aspects of cognition is trying to actually quantify indi- this individual variability in cognitive capacities um, and how those actually translate into um, fitness-related consequences for those individuals. So... What I mean there is basically, you know, we see even in the studies that, that we do just to just to simply ask whether they can do these tasks or not, huge amount of individual variability, which is exactly what you'd, what you'd sort of expect. Um, and so when you have that kind of variability, you know, selection can actually operate on that variability. Um, and so one interesting kind of um, next step in the cognitive kind of domain is, is simply trying to understand sort of how this individual variability arises and, and how it might be related to survival and reproductive success of those, those individuals um, at a population kind of level. And so that that's sort of where I see the biggest um, need to sort of push into a, kind of a new area. Um, and, and, and that probably relates to kind of Cognition in general, not necessarily in reptiles. I think we have a lot of work to do, even at just the baseline level, to just understand sort of um, you know what sorts of tasks might be important for different groups, um, what works in different groups, what doesn't work in different groups, and, and why. Um, so, so that kind of stuff um, is also really valuable uh,
0: data. Well. Wow. Very cool. Now, any plans to work with any snakes or anything like that in the future? Um, not at this stage. Okay. <laughs> there are some, there are some nice studies on snakes already. Um, there, but again, uh, there's there's some studies on corn snakes that have been done on spatial learning and stuff. Um, but again, we don't really have a lot of a lot of data on snakes. Actually, we have probably
2: a lot less data on snakes than we do lizards. So. Um, that, that definitely is a really cool area to sort of kind of progress into um, and see sort of the capacity of, of snakes. It's a bit trickier to design tasks for snakes, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but would be very,
0: very cool to try to come up with some neat designs for those guys. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, so as far as you personally, what would be... Uh, what would be the next steps that you're looking at uh, in the coming years for your research? So,
1: I'm just finishing. I have eight months left in my PhD, so...
0: Oh, wow. Uh, Congratulations. Trying-
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's going to be a long eight months. Yeah. Work, but, <laughs> but you no, know, I, I think, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of keep progressing with kind of the cognitive work, but I'm I'm more interested now in this kind of individual variability and its, and it's kind of fitness consequences. Um, and there's some great work in BIRDS being done right now um, from some, some groups uh, in England right now doing a great tid work. Um, and they're doing some just phenomenal work looking at the role of cognition, the individual variability in cognition and fitness as well as how different behavioral attributes of individuals influence um, their ability to solve some of these tasks. Um, there's also some great work done in Rick Schein's lab down here by Josh Amiel, and um, also um, Duke University has Manuel Liao working on some phenomenal stuff
2: in Annals. So <coughs> we, yeah, I mean for me it's just I guess sort of, I um, have quite a few different interests and it's just more a matter of, um, I guess, uh, trying to keep going in in some of these areas um, and so probably trying to get working with like Manuel
1: or someone like that to keep up with the cognitive work and, and stuff so yeah I guess after the PhD would be mostly trying
0: to find postdoctoral fellowships and continuing some of this, this research during, during that period. Very cool now one last question before we let you go Daniel. Something we always like to ask if we get the chance if money was no object and you could house anything you wanted to, what would be your ultimate reptile that you would keep?
1: That's a phenomenal
0: question. <laughs> I think
2: uh,
1: that is... Uh, I, I, it's a tough one. Um, let me think here. I would I would probably go with some pretty... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really into sort of... I'm, I'm into the chameleons. I actually did a lot of work um, not a lot of work but I, I kept and bred quite a lot of chameleons when I was younger and it would be phenomenal to get some of the more uh, difficult to get species um, and kind of keep those guys and, and
2: breed them um, so in terms of the species I guess I'm not really giving you a really good answer to but um, I guess from a from a group perspective it would be some, some of the chameleon species particularly um, some of the kind of the bradycodian species, like the small dwarf really Oh, yeah. Great to, to work with. Um,
0: so, yeah, that, that, would probably be, that would probably be them. Very cool. <laughs> they're
1: really cool reptiles. So it's a tough it's a tough question to
0: answer. Yeah. Oh, well, that's why we ask it, you know. <laughs> All right. And uh, any final words you want to add to uh, the study or anything that might be coming up with you guys?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we have... Um, we do have some more cognitive work done coming up with um, Empress, uh down here, which we did, which is primarily is basically Powell's research when he was down here. Oh, okay. Uh, he's got some,
0: we got some really cool results um, on on kind of the cognitive differences between males and females in similar tasks. So that should be coming out soon. So sort of uh, well, I mean, submitted soon. Um, oh, okay
1: out I will let you know but uh,
0: yeah definitely we'd love to have you back on and talk about it yeah, it's, it's really it's really they're pretty cool results um, quite interesting um, and so that's that's sort of kind
1: of the next kind of project we have coming with on the cognition front and uh, yeah I just wanted to I guess thank you for having me on the show and everything like that um, it's been great to sort of chat about all this
0: stuff with you yeah, very definitely, and like I said, I'm I'm big into into the cognition and uh, you know how do reptiles figure out tasks and trying to explain to the public that you know no reptiles are not stupid, they actually have cognitive abilities and uh, yeah, mine all started, uh, gosh, it was uh, a well known uh, herpeticulturist came on and did a little video presentation talking about you know, you can train a dog but you can't train a snake so therefore a snake is just an eating machine and that's all it is and I just came unhinged but that's another story (laughs) so yeah, I'm definitely into the reptile cognition I um, definitely look forward to sharing some more information with you and uh, learning more about what you're doing, it's very cool stuff so there you go. That was Daniel Noble talking about reptile cognition. And uh, we will be interviewing some more folks in regards to reptile cognition as well as, as well as getting back in touch with Daniel. And once again, folks, do check us out on Stitcher uh, where you can download our show to all of your mobile devices. and can catch all the shows and not have to worry about syncing and what have you. And, of course, do check out HerphouseMag.com uh, where you are guaranteed 100% satisfaction if you do purchase a single issue for just $2.00 which is the least expensive Reptiles magazine currently available today. And we also have 99% no advertising. The only advertisers we have in the magazine are those that author articles for us, and those are just business card size ads at the back of the magazine. And uh, we have kids' pages, we have feature articles, we have numerous, numerous columns. Uh, Ron Tremper is now writing the Tremper Insider for us. So it's a really great magazine, and I think uh, you really do owe it to your reptiles to get yourself a copy and definitely become a subscriber. We're growing by leaps and bounds every single year, and 2013 is looking huge for us. So thank you for tuning into The Reptile Living Room, and remember, folks, always stay hungry for the dream. We'll see you next week right here.